Welcome to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast presented by Dean Duplessis. We bring you up to date with all the ongoing fixtures domestically and on the international scene. We profile players, both current and former, and tell you all you need to know in the world of cricket. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's been a bit, but it's great to be back with you again. I'm Dean Duplessis and it gives me great pleasure to welcome a man who in quite some time has become quite meteoric in the sense that he's traveled quite a bit. He's been involved with many, many different series around the world. He's here for the Zimbabwe Island series. Andrew Leonard. Andrew, thank you so much for taking a bit of time out to have a chat. It's great to meet you. Great to ha have you here. Dino, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure to get to meet you and know you. I've heard so much about you. and. Um I yeah. hope it's all bad. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. It's been all good. And I have to say, um, been absolutely blessed with the most incredible series of cricket thus far here in Harare. Well, uh, well of course, we, we are recording the podcast on the eve of the second one-day international play between Zimbabwe and Ireland. The series, as it stands, is that Zimbabwe has a 1-0 lead in the one-day internationals. They won the T20 series by two games to one. But I think it's fair to say that regardless of which way the series goes, it, it's been typical classical Zimbabwe island stuff, hasn't it? I don't think there's any two sides in the world that seem to be closer matched uh, over a longer period of time. And um, you think all the way back to the first ever meeting in an official one day international between the two teams with uh, them meeting in Sabina Park at, at the 2007 Cricket World Cup. Mm. The, probably one of my favorite games of cricket of all time, the tie going ahead to the, the 2015 World Cup, that epic encounter down in Hobart with the contentious catch that probably swung at Ireland's way, Sean Williams being caught by John Mooney out in the deep and then even in the T20 format in, in Dharamsala in 2016, a truly ludicrous encounter I think is the only way to describe it and I think, I think both sides are probably a little bit flawed and that is maybe what makes them so good to watch but they're incredibly closely matched and if you look at their their head-to-head -head records, certainly coming into the two series, I think it was 5-4 Ireland, it's now 6 apiece in the T20s, and it was 7-all with a tie and a no result in the ODIs. So I love watching these two sides play. I've probably, particularly over the last 12 to 18 months, alongside everyone in world cricket, become really enamoured with Zimbabwe's re-emergence onto the world scene. And I just think it's so, so encouraging and so good for the global game, a strong Zimbabwe. I, I just think it's it's amazing to see. So I would say more r roughly about the, I, I would, in terms of Zimbabwe cricket and, and the uh, progression that they've made, I would say the last over the last six to seven months, because if you remember a year ago this time, Zimbabwe were gearing up to play the likes of Afghanistan, who they lost very badly to. They lost very badly to Namibia as well in a T20 series. Uh, and ever since Dave Houghton took over as coach, and of course, it doesn't mean that you want to you know, completely um, belittle or slight um, the previous coach, Larcher and Rajput, but what Dave Houghton has brought in, and his first official assignment, of course, was the World Cup qualifiers, which was played in, in July, late June and July of 2022. It just amazes me that, that he's taken a, 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 a bunch of people, the same squad, more or less, and he's changed them. He's put self-belief into them in, in that sh very short space of time. It's just amazing what he's done with them. Look, I couldn't agree more. I think there was probably signs there, though, for, for maybe 24 to 36 months. And then the arrival of Houghton coupled with 
Sikander Raz's truly freakish 2022 yes. and, yes. and long may that continue uh, and you know his personal comeback from the adversity and the illness that he had is just extraordinary but then the emergence of Yes, it's it's broadly the same pool of players, you're correct, but the likes of Richard Engaraba, obviously the return of Blessing Muzurbani was a huge boost. And then in this series in particular, you know, Ryan Burrell probably turning into the player that we all know he can be. Uh, I think he's going to be in for an incredible two or three years to come. And it all comes down to that culture that Houghton has instilled. The personnel haven't changed much, have they? If anything, the likes of Irvine and Williams are getting that little bit older. They are. Even yeah. Raza himself. Yeah. But I, I cannot speak fondly enough or more highly of Zimbabwean cricket, what it means to the country here, what it means for the global game. I think back to my youth and, and adoring watching Zimbabwe all the way through the 90s and then you know, being devastated as to what happened coming through some of the dark times in, in the noughties and, and, and the 2010s. And there were very dark times for Zimbabwean cricket, there's no doubt. But just being there last Sunday at the HSC, and seeing what it means to the country for the Chevrons going well. I genuinely, <laughs> I was with Paul Sterling yesterday and I, I was explaining to him because he didn't play the T20s just how amazing an occasion it was. And I said, mate, I think it's the best day I've ever been involved with in the sport. And he said, oh Lenny, there might be a bit of recency bias there. I said, yeah, maybe you're right, but genuinely it was extraordinary. The atmosphere, the energy, the enthusiasm, the knowledge of the crowd and, and the players knowing what it meant to them. Um, and this is a bilateral series against Ireland in January that, you know, in theory, outside of ranking points, there isn't a huge amount on. So uh, I am feeling really blessed to be a little part of Zimbabwe's journey right now, having been here for the T20 World Cup uh, men's qualifier uh, last year in, in Bulawayo and the year before for the women's qualifier, which was very sadly abridged. Uh, it's my third trip here now. and. I absolutely promise you, Dino, it won't be my last. No, I, I, I can <laughs> I can certainly see that. I and, and you've made a lot of friends in the times that you've been here. That's for sure. You certainly mm. have been amongst it and, and and good for you. Um let's talk a bit about island cricket. Mm. The, the the first thing that springs to mind is I would imagine that many of the players wouldn't quite be used to the incredible noise uh, and the atmosphere that they've experienced at at Harare Sports Club. Admittedly, there's only, what, eight to 10,000 people, but it's the noise that they make. It makes it sound like it's closer to 15 or 20,000 people. Um, do you think that, that at times can be a little disconcerting? Because I would imagine you wouldn't have the big crowds like that at, at venues when I play back home. No, you're spot on. Uh, you've nailed it on the head, probably in our history. Uh, I think back to a game in 2013 where we did get 10,000 for an Ireland-England one-day international. That was the first ever official game at Malahide, the newly re redeveloped Malahide Cricket Club. That. And that was a very special day. I was lucky to be involved in that working for Cr Cricket Ireland, helping to get that crowd there. And that was a, probably the biggest crowd we've ever had in Ireland. Since then, we've had India visit a couple of times. And those India crowds, they wouldn't have been as big as 10,000 because I think they only built the stadium to 8,000 because it's always temporary but they would have been quite fervent in atmosphere, but they wouldn't have been Irish supporting fans. You know, it would have probably been seven, seven and a half thousand of the 8,000 <laughs> of the ground were Indian fans. Um, so uh, Andy Balberni said it at the toss at the first ODI when, when Dirk asked him, um, you know, what, what, how have you made, what have you made of the tour? And he said, well, the atmosphere on Sunday is probably the best atmosphere the majority of the squads ever played in front of. Someone like Paul Sterling might be excluded. You know, he's played in, a, in, in the PSL. Oh, and yes, yes. 
in front of 30,000 fans and you know really uh, cricket loving public there in Pakistan but it's incredible to think and I understand why some of the crowds were lower at the World Cup in Australia it was very early in the season the weather was particularly poor unseasonably poor um, but you know there was more people in the HSC uh, on Sunday for a T20I than there was when Ireland beat England at the MCG um, and I think one of the big things that has been a great benefit for this tour for Irish cricket is the fact that um, the three boys who are probably are maybe arguably are standout three players alongside Andy Balbernia in Paul Sterling, Josh Little and Lorcan Tucker were all off playing franchise gigs. So Paul and Lorcan were at the ILT20 in the UAE and Josh was down with the Pretoria Capitals in the SA20 and that gave an opportunity for three players and Ross Adair has come from absolutely nowhere to open the batting for Ireland to now have a, one day, or sorry, a T20 International 50 to his name and I think he's probably still got a fair bit of adapting to go uh, in terms of getting used to the pace and the speed and the skill of international cricket but my god he's an exciting prospect a domestic strike rate of 170. Yeah he is very special very special uh, to me the name though Harry Tector I, I feel that Ireland have a real gem there in Harry Tector I have watched his progression and I'll use the word watch as opposed to listen <laughs> I've watched his progression that is one special cricketer and and it came as a massive surprise to me when we first saw him bowl and I've asked the question and I'll it's more of a rhetorical question why has he not bowled why did he only make his international debut in terms of bowling in the first T20 against Zimbabwe because he is a handful he really is and the Zimbabwean left-handers and in particular Craig Irvine have no answer to him he's probably been alongside Ryan Burrell the best bowler in in the four matches we've seen so far Um, look Harry's an exceptional talent I think he's someone everyone in Irish cricket uh, has known a lot about for a long time Uh, his elder brother Jack captained the Irish 19s uh, at a World Cup that was in Bangladesh Harry then went on to captain them at an under 19 World Cup and now the younger brother Tim did it most recently at the uh, 2022 under 19 World Cup in, in the Caribbean where I was with the boys commentating and the, th- the three of them have all followed different journeys in their cricketing path. Uh, Jack has, has gone into work now and he's, he'll still play in the domestic scene but I wouldn't say it's too early to rule him out, he's only probably 26. Harry's 23 and if you look at his progression, particularly in the ODI game, it's phenomenal. I would say without doubt he's the first ever Irish batter to be averaging over 50 in ODI cricket, which he now is with that unbeaten century a couple of days ago. And it's the speed at which he has progressed and learned his game. I think the big thing that people might forget who watch international cricket only and wouldn't follow the Irish domestic scene, the step up in quality to go to the international game where Ireland are predominantly playing against almost exclusively the Test Nations these days. They still have to play against the associates coming through qualifiers and the like. But the vast majority of their fixtures have been against West Indies, India. There's a here against Zimbabwe, New Zealand, South Africa. England we play an awful lot against. We've got a Test and ODIs coming up against them this summer. So for a young man to go from YMCA Cricket Club where he plays his cricket through the Irish domestic system, he actually went up to the Northern Knights as a youngster because he, he thought the Lightning were too strong uh, when he was very young. 
but the jump in, in and I, I think even Cricket Ireland would say this, there's still a massive jump between the, the domestic game, which is the four provinces, uh, first class structure, if you will, although they haven't played any red ball cricket since pre-pandemic. And the way every Irish cricketer, Lorcan Tucker's a great example of this as well, they have to learn on the job. They're not getting the opportunity that a young English or a young New Zealand or Australian cricketer would get in terms of playing 15, 20, maybe 50 or 60 first class red ball games, some white ball list A cricket, some T20 franchise stuff before they go to play internationally. So the Irish players, they're learning on the job and I think that is such a difficult thing to do. And for Harry now, 20 odd games into his international career to be on the cusp of a thousand ODI runs, averaging over 50 and adding that bowling string to your bow that I haven't even answered your question about, <laughs> it is quite exciting. I think, I, I mean, and you lead me so very nicely to the next topic I was going to talk about, and that is the amount of cricketing families. You know, there's so many similarities between Ireland and Zimbabwe, aren't there? In, in the sense that having to try and make the, the jump from domestic cricket to international cricket, in the sense that they have relatively little in terms of resources, but also from a family perspective, a sibling perspective. I mean, you've, you've spoken about Harry Tector, you've spoken about Jack and Tim. Now we have the Delaney's as well, uh, Stephen and uh, Alex and Laura. Um, Stephen, is that correct? I beg your pardon. Gareth, Gareth Delaney. Gareth Delaney, yep. Gareth Delaney, yes. Uh, I'm thinking of Stephen Doherty, of course. And, but, um, and uh, Gareth has a cousin called David Delaney, who's oh my the, goodness. the fastest bowler we've ever produced. And he's still in and around. A lot of Irish fans would think he should be in the mix, but he, he's just out of favour at the moment, yeah. Why would that be? Oh, God, that, that could take a whole podcast <laughs> up in itself. Um, I think David... David's probably found the adjustment to international cricket, and particularly the travel and the rigours of of the international game maybe a bit too much to take on he's still very young he's probably played I don't have it in front of me I'd say he's played eight, eight or ten games for Ireland um, and when he's bowled he, he's probably the one bowler with the exception of Josh Little who can get it up north of 140 maybe even 145 kilometres an hour wow. hell of a good batter as well and has done really well in domestic cricket because he's so quick he can be expensive and he can be costly um, but yeah, he's somebody who could come in, but to, to answer your point about families in Irish cricket, it is quite literally an institution, the game in Ireland, when a family member takes it on, they tend to have, like I can speak of my own circumstances, my dad had no cricketing background, but by the time he saw that I was so keen on the game, he ended up learning how to do the scorebook and became the scorer of our, our first 11 oh, in our wonderful. club for yeah. nearly a decade, and loved it and adored every second of it. Uh, the O'Briens are probably the most famous example, uh, Kevin and Niall. Um, and Joyce and as well? The Joyce's, sorry, the Joyce's in, in terms of uh, breadth and depth, yes. certainly with the two sisters, the three brothers who played for Ireland, Ed by far the most famously, but Dom as well. And um, yeah, the O'Briens with, with the um, you know, son of Ginger, the former Irish captain. Uh, John and Paul Mooney from North came to yes. Dublin um, and there's, there's probably an awful lot more we're, we're forgetting and um, it seems to me that every club in Ireland will have a name that is kind of synonymous with the club whether it's Armstrong's up in in North County or Dwyer's in the hills uh, or Balburnie's in, in Pembroke or McCarthy's in Pembroke you know Barry's sisters played internationally for Ireland um, Josh's in Pembroke again, Josh's sister has played internationally for Ireland, the other sister may well as well. It's just, it's a family affair in Ireland because 
I think pr primarily for a couple of reasons. One, we get very long summer holidays. Um, so we have about three months off from school. June, July and August tend to be entirely off for secondary school. Um, it's the best time of the year in the country and we have beautiful long summer evenings. It can stay bright till 10, 10.30 at night in the, at the height of the summer. And I think when Irish people discover the game and they fall for it, they fall head over heels for it. And there's probably, being honest with you, Dean, there's probably only maybe 10 or 15 or maybe 20,000 real cricket tragics in Ireland. But those who love it probably love it and are as knowledgeable as any cricket fans anywhere in the world. Yeah, yeah. W would you say that, that they would have the same passion and love as to the majority of the island sports supporters, which obviously love their rugby? Yeah, and it's not just rugby. The, the big thing that I think people who, um, who just look at Ireland as an international country they only look at, at rugby or our, our fabled international soccer days are unfortunately a, a bit of a relic of the past. <laughs> the Jack Charlton and Mick McCarthy years seem a, a distant memory in our three World Cup appearances in, in football. But the rugby team is leading the way now. But the biggest sport in the country by a distance is, is the Gaelic Games. And that, those are actually three sports. Uh, one is Gaelic football, which is a kind of hybrid between rugby and soccer would be a very novice description of it. Hurling, which they call the fastest field sport in the world, which was much fabled that Owen Morgan played quite a bit of when he was younger. That's why he reverse swept so well, because mm. they play that yeah. game reverse-handed. So a, a cricket batter who is right-handed will have his left hand on the top, his right hand at the bottom. In hurling, it's the opposite. You play it in what? In Ireland, it's not an offensive rule, but you play it cack-handed. <laughs> you play it the wrong way around. <laughs> uh, that's hurling. And then there's also handball, which is the smallest of the three Gaelic sports. Um, but those three would account for, in terms of uh, playing base, facilities, media coverage, um, fan attendance for probably 60% of the Irish sporting market. I'm not exaggerating. And then rugby picks out the next best 10-15% as does soccer. And then we have a, a phenomenal culture of, of boxing, of athletics, of horse racing, of golf. and then cricket somewhere distantly behind all of those sports I've mentioned comes in but the amazing thing about Irish cricket and I haven't told you those things to try and demean Irish cricket because I adore it and I love it so deeply that we with our limited playing base with our limited culture of the sport in the country we achieve so far above our means internationally and I think that the group that Andy Balberni has now particularly in a 50 over context I know they lost a couple of days ago in a thriller to Zimbabwe, I think they're a superb ODI side. They, they, they beat South Africa in 2021. They won an away series in, King, in uh, Sabina Park against the West Indies in January. Um, they should have beaten New Zealand twice at home, nearly chasing 360, failing to get six or maybe seven off the last over. And they are a really good one-day international side now. They're still learning their T20 game, very much imperfect in that format. Um, and they did really well to get through to the Super 12s. I think that was their World Cup final as such in, in uh, 2022, uh, last year in, in Australia. I think there's a genuine chance Ireland might qualify for India 2023, whether that be by beating Bangladesh 3-0 in May or going through the qualifier, which we obviously hope will be hosted here in Zimbabwe. And that, for me, would be, for a 10-team World Cup, maybe one of the biggest achievements in Irish cricketing history.
It must be jolly frustrating because I'm speaking now from a Zimbabwean perspective. When I mean, you alluded to the fact that uh, Zimbabwe, I beg your pardon, Ireland should have beaten the West, in, uh, should have beaten New Zealand, mm. uh, and they did beat the West Indies. Which I mean, that was obviously very, very special. But I, I remember one of the games in particular against New Zealand, where two batters scored hundreds. Uh, and it happened again against Zimbabwe. Two batters score hundreds, but unfortunately they still end up on, on the losing end. Now this has happened to Zimbabwe on a couple of occasions as well. I, I specifically remember um, Stuart Carlisle and Sean Irvin scoring hundreds against India back in 2004 at the Adelaide Oval. Beautifully set up where Zimbabwe really, you know, single-handedly and re respons were, were responsible for stealing defeat from the jaws of imminent victory. I mean, but it is so frustrating when that happens, isn't it? Look, it is, and I think the funny thing about Irish cricket historically, probably before we ascended to become a, a first and ODI nation and now a test nation, our strength probably would have been in our bowling. Uh, I think of the great spin bowlers and seam bowlers we produced going all the way back to the likes of Alec O'Riordan, um, uh, sensational cricketers Kyle McCallan, uh, Matt Dwyer, brilliant spin bowlers. Our strength was always probably in our bowling, and I know the likes of Alan Lewis, the former Ireland captain, will hear this and admonish me for forgetting the, the brilliant batters like himself and Jason Mullins and Angus Dunlop <laughs> and um, Wark and, and so many incredible yeah. cricketers who've represented Ireland down the years. The, the difference now is the scale of opportunity these boys have. They're all full-time professionals. They play basically as full-time cricketers close to the best part of nine, ten months of the year quite often. This year alone, I'll really quickly run you through it. We're in Zimbabwe right now. Three or four of the boys go back to franchise leagues. Then in March, there's a full format tour of Bangladesh where they play ODIs, T20s and a test match. Oh, lovely. They then go to Sri Lanka for a test match in April. In May, they have three ODIs, which are critical <coughs> final three Cricket World Cup Super League games, uh, which may or may not be hosted actually in the United Kingdom from what I gather. And then they've got some T20s, which will hopefully be on Irish soil. That's all. That's just to May. In June, if they don't get through the Super League, they'll be here for the Cricket World Cup qualifier for the best part of a month before having to go to a T20 World Cup qualifier, which will be regionalised with the change in format. So that will be in Scotland in July. Then in August, they've got um, further home series. I've missed the test match against England at Lords at the start of June, which is a four-day test, but a test match nonetheless at Lords, where we very competed very well Absolutely. the first time we played them, yeah. played them at. That will then move on to um, the potential of a, a Cricket World Cup in October, November, and then a multi-series tour back here in Zimbabwe. That's just <laughs> this year. Now, now is that, will that include a test match, the one here in Zimbabwe? Uh, from what the FTP says and what's being announced publicly, I believe so. Like all these things, particularly yeah, <laughs> series for Ireland or Zimbabwe, I you know, believe them when they, they happen. You never know what's, what's going to happen next. You know, because a lot of people have been saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a proper... Uh, or to quote uh, the late Frank McCaw, who always used to say, wouldn't it be lovely if, if we could have a, a test series between Ireland and Zimbabwe because they're so equally or evenly matched. A test series of, of I would have loved three test matches, but that's, that's pie in the sky, that's not going to happen. <laughs> a three test match series between these two nations, regardless of where they play, would be, honestly, it would be a thing of pure beauty. It really would, and we, we've never met in Test Match Cricket, despite being so closely ranked and, and Ireland ascending you know, for, for nearly five years ago now to test status, playing our first test against Pakistan back in 2018. Um, I hope that will happen later in the year. I think it's just the one test that it, it's, it's slated in for, which always 
it, it leaves people give out about two test match Most series being cynical. short. Yeah. But one 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 off tests always leave you kind of wanting more, don't they? Yeah, wanting yeah. the narrative to build. Um, but look, the, the side that we're only talking about the men's side here, but the men's and women's sides, I, I really believe very strongly punch above their weight. Uh, the women's side is a very exciting one, particularly Amy Hunter, Orla Prendergast, and Gabby Lewis. Maybe three potentially world-class players there in the women's game. They won a T20i series. I was lucky enough to be there in Lahore against Pakistan this year. And look, I think the biggest thing I'm trying to get across is just how much these men and women and boys and girls really manage to punch significantly above both the player pool that we have, but also the facilities that we have in Ireland. Like I look at the Harare Sports Club there, and as I walk into it, I, I just look at it and wish we had something like that in Ireland. Yeah. Every international ground we've played at in Ireland is in essence a club ground. And don't get me wrong, we've some beautiful and very picturesque club grounds, but just in terms of, we have very few grass playing wickets, sorry, very few grass training wickets in the country. So for, you know, Ed Joyce, who came back from Sussex at the end of his career to come and finish a couple of years with Ireland, he couldn't believe that he was on a full-time contract and he couldn't get a grass net to have a bat on. And then a week later, he was expected to go out and play against England. You know, and I think, again, everyone, the clubs and Cricket Ireland do as, as good a job as they can in terms of getting access to pitches, but we don't have a dedicated facility. There is something being built in the west of Dublin, which is a national sports campus but at the moment that's just training wickets and a fielding surface there's no actual cricket ground so the players would go out there when they're not on tours to do their they use these phenomenal um, strength and conditioning and, and gym and recovery facilities that Abbottstown has at the national sports campus well that, 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 that is a shame Mm. That is a real shame because it would be good to see. I mean, but do you think a lot of, of, of the challenges that you'd face, is that, is that weather? Um, is that to do with the, uh, you know, because predominantly your weather obviously isn't the greatest in terms of cricket. Um, you've got <laughs> you your three long again. months. But um, do you think that that may be what a situation that makes people reluctant to spend money to build um, facilities that you would need or not necessarily? Look, the weather is always a challenge in Ireland and probably something what we that we've been criticised for historically is, is the number of matches or overs that we would lose to rain when it's not actually raining, if that makes sense. So the recovery from rain, the drainage of our international grounds, which again are club grounds, the, the spread of the covers that we would have, you know, we don't have this incredible hover cover like they have at Lourdes or what they have in Sri Lanka where they have the ability to cover every inch of the outfield with what seems like an army of ground staff. We'll probably have, you know, one head groundsman and five or six volunteers and a couple of guys helping out. And that's the reality of it. I think the biggest challenge, and, and even you know, Cricket Ireland have come out and said their number one focus over the next couple of years is to progress the facilities because they recognise it's a challenge. And even Andy Balberni, as the Irish captain, has been quite outspoken about this, um, is that we need a significant investment in a permanent ground that would be the home of Irish cricket. Um, we're actually, you know, outside of rugby, or obviously I think, I think they might be top of the world rankings right now in the men's game, um, outside of rugby, cricket would be one of our next highest ranking sports in any sporting field despite it being such a sporting nation and we have regularly qualified for World Cups in men's and women's and youth formats and we probably 
at this stage, it's mad to think that it's 2023, and despite the beauty of Malahide and the stunning scenery of Breedy in the northwest and, and the quality of Stormont, and then the, the beautiful quaintness of Clontarf, which is one of my favorite grounds in the country, they're the only four international grounds. They're all permanent club grounds, and when we go and play an international there, we've got to build every single thing you need for an international. Like you would know, Dino, you need match officials areas, you need TV commentary boxes, yeah. you need media facilities, you need players changing rooms. All of that gets built in almost all of those venues. Breedy does have a permanent high quality uh, media and, and, and changing facility, but the other places, it all gets built just for the two series that it's hosting, the, the 10 days of cricket that are being played there. I want to I want to like to chat a bit more about the structure of island cricket and players coming through the ranks. Do you think that there is a certain amount of resentment amongst some of the younger Irish players when you still see a fair amount of South Africans coming making their way into the side? I mean, it's certainly in, in you spoke about the 2007 World Cup where there were only well, there were a handful of, of Ireland, Irish-born players. I mean, but you know, you had um, a couple of Aussies and South Africans and, and so on there. Now you still have a couple of South Africans in Graham Hume, Curtis Kampfer. Um, but, but, but of course, the, the Ireland-born players are really beginning to st stamp their, their authority and, and come through the system. But do you feel that there is a, a twinge of resentment sometimes? and? People say, why do we still have so many South Africans coming through when we are making strides and getting more of our, uh, I suppose, I Irish-born players in the system? Yeah, look, I think it's a really interesting topic and, and we've seen some nations certainly be significantly more guilty of it than Ireland have. Yeah. The only way to look at it really in my eyes is that if someone qualifies and commits to a country, they should absolutely be in contention for selection. Is there rumblings around some of the club grounds in Ireland about, you know, why Graham Hume is in the squad instead of David Delaney? Absolutely. And I'm not going to hide from that. And that's what happens around the, the walls of the clubs across Dublin and across the country. And look, I think if you look back to 2007, it was a completely different era. Yes. yes. Andre Botha, David Langford Smith, Jeremy Bray and Trent Johnston were the four. And they were what I would describe as, as people who came to Ireland as almost economic migrants, maybe economic migrants is not the best description, but they came as part of the boom, the Celtic Tiger, this huge economic um, impact that we had in the country where we went from being a third world country in the 1980s to being one of the economic powerhouses of, of the world by a you know, per capita basis and continue to be so, one of the most educated populations in, in the world. And we're a great little success story of a country, you know, we've come out of the relics of, of a horrible uh, initially a war of independence, then a civil war, and then a, a, a very disturbing period called the Troubles with all of the mm. political and, and yes. instability in the north of Ireland, which to a certain extent still continues to this day, but it's, com it's at least peaceful now. And it's been peaceful since 1998, the Good Friday Agreement. And the Langford Smiths, the Bothas, the Johnstons, um, the Brays had a critical role to play in terms of somewhat professionalising what was a very merry band of amateurs prior to that. You know, in 2004, we, our fixture list read Ireland versus Free Foresters versus the Duke of Norfolk's 11 and a couple of, uh, you know, cucumber sandwiches games and a, a yearly uh, annual three-day first-class game against Scotland. And that all changed when we 
qualified first for the World Cup for the 2005 ICC Trophy. So to answer your question about the modern players, and we see another foreign-born player come into the squad in place of Andy Valberni, who's suffered a, that concussion, so he's going to miss mm. the last two games. Murray Cummins, who is a very fine left-handed player um, from uh, with South African origin, I believe. And look, the big thing for me is if they move to Ireland, they serve their qualification period, an awful lot of these guys uh, and girls, they, they come in terms of... Curtis was a different story because he actually held an Irish passport. So he kind of came straight right. in. He was, he was jettisoned in, for want of a better description, without even ever playing a game in Ireland. I think that sat a bit poorly with people. But Graham Hume has been living in the north of Ireland for, I think, the best part of five years. He's um, really contributed massively to the club game. He also coaches and also the interprovincial format. He's got over 300 first-class wickets. Um, Camphor's a bit of a different story, but Murray Cummins is as good, as, as good a player as I've seen domestically in the club game and we're desperately in need of a left-handed batter. Now, would you rather see an 18-year-old Irish kid who's done well at an under-19 World Cup be given the chance instead? I don't think there's even close to a comparison right now. If there was a young fella who we felt we could catapult into the team, I think it would be done. There is a young seamer called Reuben Wilson who was only 15 at last year's under-19 World Cup who is a phenomenal talent. And he may debut in his teens just like Josh Little did. But the, the, I can't name you five young cricketers who are right now being kept out because Curtis Camper and Graham Hume are playing or in these squads. It, it, the, it's not there right now. And maybe the David Delaney fans and, and other fans of other players back in Ireland will, will say different. But uh, I think it's, it's almost par, par for the course. You look at the English team, bloody hell. Half of their side at some points has come from, you know, foreign oh, fields certainly, and the rest. Yeah, no, no, that, that's a wonderful explanation, Andrew. And I, I don't really think any, I don't think anybody, I don't think there's any real criticism. But you know, there are always those armchair critics or yep. even parents, I suppose. You know, who would say, "My child worked jolly hard, and yet he gets overlooked because of X, Y, Z." And and you're going to have that the world over, I, I, I believe. And what about what about the ladies' game? I mean, is is that now? Um, because they seem to have a wonderful selection and collection of true Irish players, if I can put it to you that way. I don't really know if there are too many um, Australian-born, South African-born ladies who represent the, the Irish women's team. Yeah, look, the, the young talent that the Irish women's side have is quite phenomenal, and they're all almost all teenagers are in their early 20s. Gabby Lewis, uh, Amy Hunter in particular from the north oh, of Ireland, special. is very, very oh, special. Oh, my goodness. And, and I have to say, the growth of the game in the north of Ireland, the women's game, that is, is really so enthusing because there's been such a dearth through the 70s, 80s and 90s of the women's game to the point where it almost didn't exist in the north of Ireland. Both the Northern Cricket Union, which is based around Belfast, and the Northwest Cricket Union, which is based around Derry. There's really four hubs of the game in Ireland. Dublin, Derry, Belfast and Cork and Cork is, is very much in, still in its infancy and still growing. And Dublin you could almost separate into, you know, the South County Dublin strongholds, where the likes of Balburney, Little, McCarthy, O'Brien's, uh, Joyce's all would have come from. And then the North County Dublin, which is your Fingal area, which is a real cricketing hotbed, where your Moonies, your Fionhans, uh, these sort of guys have, have come through, your, your Connor Armstrongs. But for the Irish women's team, they did pick up a couple of, uh, just really one import, uh, a woman called Arlene Kelly, who's in her mid-twenties, 
who was born in Auckland, um, and she's come in and had a really good impact, just bowling medium pace, probably something that they needed. She's still playing domestically down there. Uh, she's now been rewarded with a Cricket Ireland contract. And Ema Richardson, even though she's born in Brett Irish, she also plays professionally down in New Zealand. She spends most of her time there. But it's really that top three of Amy Hunter, Gabby Lewis and Orla Prendergast that for me are maybe as good and as quick scoring as anyone in the women's game. And yeah, they're going to a World Cup in, in about six weeks time from now, maybe eight weeks time down in South Africa. Yeah. Will they win the World Cup? Probably not. Will they compete and maybe win some games? I think absolutely. And, and I think even if they don't win games, you will see an individual performance or two from Hunter Lewis and Prendergast that's going to make people go, wow, these girls are special. I have a producer tapping me on the shoulder, which means that it's nearly time up. So we better get back to uh, what is currently happening. Uh, one game down, two to go. There's a bit of weather around. There's certainly uh, had a lot of rain last night, that's mm. for sure. Some places recording up to 115 millimetres, which is quite special. But we do hope that um, cricket will be played. Zimbabwe, a 1-0 lead. Now, how do you see this one panning out? I know that you've just absolutely loved the cricket and uh, there's been a part of you that hasn't particularly cared who's won, but you are Irish after all and I'm Zimbabwean after all. So <laughs> we put all of, <laughs> we do have our professional uh, cap that we wear, but in, in our hearts, of course, we know who we, we would like to win. Um, I, it'll be interesting to see. I think Ireland obviously would be but disappointed with what happened in, in that Duckworth-Lewis game because they had that game under control. They really did. Mm. Now, um, I do believe that they can find a way back. Do you think that Ireland can and will come from behind to make a 2-1 or do you think that this could be maybe a 2-1 series win to Zimbabwe? Well, look, I think whatever happens, it should be 2-1 either way. Yeah. I, I think yeah. I, I can't see Zimbabwe winning 3-0. Maybe they will, uh, but just the sides are so evenly matched and so closely matched. Speaking of that rain first, I did get caught in that at the tin roof last night. Oh, did you? Which was almost biblical in its <laughs> proportions of rain. I've never seen anything like it. Um, but yeah, the, look, I, I, I genuinely don't mind who wins this series. It's one of those beautiful things that's actually aiding both sides' development and preparation towards that World Cup qualifier in, in, in June, July that will be held here. I think that the, the big thing for me uh, whenever any of these sides in and around these rankings, I know they're both test countries, Ireland and Zimbabwe, but I would still class them as developing nations. I'd put them alongside the top six or seven associates. And for me, Dean, really, I'm happy whatever happens, but I just have a sneaking suspicion. and I've been proven repeatedly wrong in the commentary box throughout this tour with my predictions. I think Ireland will come back and win this series. And I think one reason as to why that is, you might say, well, hold on, no Andy Balburnie, you got a century in the first game. I just think that when Paul Sterling leads, we saw it in the West Indies when Andy Valberni missed out with COVID, Ireland play a really dynamic brand of the game. Yeah, yeah, he does bring the best out of players somehow, doesn't he? He really does. He's a yeah. special guy, Paul yeah. Sterling. And also, he didn't get many runs in the first game. He got a really poor LBW decision. The ball didn't even actually end up hitting his pad at any point uh, in the delivery, even though it was a very difficult one for the umpire. I think he got through the difficult part. He got to 10 or 12. His record in ODI cricket recently has been phenomenal. And if you add that to Harry Tector, I think there's a more consistent weight of runs possibly coming from the Irish batters. I'd like to see Barry McCarthy come back into the team. I think he adds a wicket-taking threat for Ireland. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and his, his ODI record speaks for itself, one of the fastest ever to 50 ODI wickets. Um, and yes, the way in which Ireland lost that game, that will really you know, have left a, a sour taste in their mouth. 
I would love it, whatever happens, that Ireland win on Saturday so that we've, we're set up for a series decider on Monday. Andrew Leonard, it's been wonderful talking to you. I would have loved to have spoken a bit more about your personal career, the people that you've met, and I know that you've spoken about uh, cricketers and golfers sharing the same town, but we have run out of time. We'll have to do a continuation, maybe when I'm with you in Ireland. Now that would be nice. I'd love to come and spend some time in Ireland. You would always be welcome in Ireland. We say Cade Miller Falch. It's the land, oh, land of a thousand welcomes. That's I, I would love it. Thank you. And we would be well set for it version two. Be my pleasure. <laughs> it's been so nice chatting to you, mate. It really has. Listen, you've been listening to the Dnuts Dunk podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, perhaps from a, a, a sponsor perspective, you're welcome to do so. You can follow me on at Dean underscore P-L-E-S-S-I-S -S -S on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, Andrew? You can get me at Cricket Badge. Uh, I think I was trying to get Cricket Badger and it was taken. I've ended up with <laughs> Cricket Badge, which is me, Andrew Leonard. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll be back again pretty soon. Until then, take care. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast, presented by Dean Duplessis. Join us again next week and catch up with all the action in the world of cricket.